James 3, we're reading verses 13 to 18. If there's a Bible in front of you and you haven't got a Bible, there's one there for you, and I have no idea what the number on the page is. I didn't do my homework, so. James 3, verses 13 to 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have a bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Thanks, Art, for leading and for praying. It's good to be back in the book of James. Uh, We've been here for a little while if you're visiting with us. And uh, uh, we're, as you would tell, in James chapter 3. James begins with another question, which uh, a few weeks ago he also asked a question which we considered his question in uh, chapter 2 was as he's talking about faith and he's talking about different kinds of faith. He asks the question, can that faith save a person? And so we rummaged around a little bit with that uh, reality is, what's the difference between one faith and another? It's a really important question. Well, here he begins with another question, and uh, it's an important question, where he says, who is wise in understanding among you? It's really important to work that through and to process that a little bit in our own hearts and minds. How can you tell? How do you know somebody is wise? How do you know somebody has understanding? How would you be able to look at somebody and say, that person is wise, or that person has understanding? Is it because of the degrees that are after their name? Is it because somewhere you've heard about the number of their IQ? Is it because there's some way that you can take an MRI of the head and determine the mass of somebody's brain? Is it the number of books that a person writes? How, how do you tell that somebody is wise or... Somebody has understanding. Well, James tells us that the way you can tell a person of wisdom is by their life. By a beautiful life. And I wonder if I were to give you a pen and a paper today, you already have that, or a tablet, or your smartphone, and said you'd take, take a couple of moments, and in the length of a tweet, 280 characters, about 50 words, Maybe we would even have the hashtag, beautiful life. Describe the beautiful life. I'd be fascinated to see the descriptions that we came up with to describe the beautiful life. You see, James is telling us that a beautiful life, a life of wisdom, is a life that is evidenced in the way that we live. And so he says, he says, you can spot a wise person By the conduct of their life, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. The New International Version says, 
um, uh, how do you know is wise and understanding? Let them show it by their good life and by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. The New Living Translation says, prove it by living an honorable life, doing good works with the humility that comes from wisdom. See, James describes the evidence of a wise and an understanding person, not by the size of their brain, nor by the number of their IQ, but by the conduct of their life. It's their behavior that gives a hint about their wisdom and their understanding. Paul, in another place, says, be very careful then how you live, not as the unwise, but as the wise. I don't know if this is what we hear a lot today in the world in which we live. I think we live in a world which is largely separated knowledge and wisdom and understanding from lifestyle. But the truth is that ideas have consequences. And James is going to help us articulate that when he describes the two different sources of wisdom and the kind of lives that they lead to. So you can't separate out wisdom and understanding from lifestyle. And as James has been doing throughout the books, he is making a connection between saving faith, living faith, genuine faith, and the way that our lives look, the way that our lives show it. And so here he says again, uh, who is wise and understanding? Show it. It will be evidenced in your life by your good conduct. And as we think about this notion, he says good conduct. Um, good is an adjective. And there's a couple adjectives in the Greek language which are used and translated in various ways, but uh, often by the same word good. One of the adjectives is a, 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 a word agathos, which points really to what is intrinsically good, whether it's seen or not, where the adjective used here, kalos, is a, is, is a word that describes something that is visibly seen, but the, what you see is a product of what comes from inside. It's a word that's used to translate a couple Hebrew words. Um, uh, one of my favorite Old Testament Hebrew words um, is isha, uh, which means beautiful. And uh, I, from time to time, will call Kathy Yafe Isha, which means my beautiful wife. And if I haven't called her that for a little while, she'll say, why haven't you called me Yafe Isha? And so it's, 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 a, it's a translation, though. Uh, it's, it's the, that, that adjective is the same uh, in Hebrew as how they translate it with Greek is beautiful. It's also a, a word that translates another Hebrew word, tov, which is good. And we find that word particularly used in Genesis chapter 1 where God describes his creation and again and again and again he describes it as good. We could say it's beautiful. As he surveys it and looks at it, it is, is beautiful. It's a word that, uh, adjective that's used in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 uh, verse 11 for instance where it says there of God he made everything beautiful in its time. Or it's a word that's used to describe uh, Sarah uh, Abraham's wife, when the Egyptians looked at Sarah's wife, they said, whoa, she's a beautiful woman. And Rachel is described as a beautiful woman. You go to the New Testament and you find the disciples looking at the temples and the stones which had been carved out and laid uh, that were put into the temple. And they described those, those stones with this adjective. And uh, some of the translations say, and they looked at the beautiful stones 
or in another place in the New Testament, and Luke, uh, Jesus is, uh, there, there's described for us the account of the lady who came and poured this incredibly expensive oil over Jesus' head. And they were complaining about what a waste of money this was to have poured this oil onto Jesus. And Jesus' response to her indignation was, she has done a beautiful thing to me. And so you take all of those, and that's why I come back to James, and when he describes there, let him show it by his good conduct, I have translated that beautiful, that the wise and the understanding person lives a beautiful life. We've been working our way through um, the New City Catechism. You were here as we read through that question just a little bit earlier today. And I hope that as we go through these questions, you understand that this is more than just an intellectual exercise. It's more than just an exercise in theology. The intent is to drill into our hearts and minds truth that will then shape us. It will shape our thinking, which in turn will shape our living. There was a, some of you would be familiar with a, another catechism, the Westminster Catechism, produced back in the 1600s. And there was an essay written by uh, one Benjamin Warfield, a, a famous teacher out of Princeton Cemetery, uh, cemetery. <laughs> might be a cemetery today, but Princeton Seminary. And the, the title of his article was, um, Is the Shorter Catechism Worthwhile? In other words, does it make a difference in our life? And he goes on to, to argue that, yes, it is worthwhile. And one of the uh, things that he does is he tells this story in there. He says, we've got the following bit of personal experience from a general officer of the United States Army. He was in a great western city at the time of, I believe it's the Civil War, of intense excitement and violent rioting. And the streets were overrun daily by a dangerous crowd. And one day, he observed approaching him a man of singularly combined calmness and firmness of mien. That's a, a way of saying appearance or the way that he walked whose every demeanor inspired confidence. So impressed was he with his bearing amid the surrounding uproar that when he passed, he turned back at him only to find the stranger at once had turned back on him and came back to him and pointing him, touching him on the chest, demanded without preface, what is the chief end of man? And on receiving the countersign, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Ah, he said, I knew you were a shorter catechism man by the way you walked. Why, I was just thinking the same thing, was the rejoinder. You see, the truth of God, the wisdom of God that they had absorbed through learning the catechism had not only been something that was intellectually helpful and stimulating to them, but it had changed the way that they walked. The very appearance, the, the way they held themselves in the midst of that debauched time. Some of you would know, I've said it from time to time, that I have been fascinated with the Navy SEALs with the training and with the kind of individual that is attracted there, uh, the product that is produced. And uh, I've watched a, a number of interviews, read a number of books, and uh, often you will hear them say that they can spot one of their own in a crowd, in a mall, as they're walking down the street, just by the way they carry themselves, 
by the confidence that they have, by the, by the look that they have, by, the, by, the, by just the, their bearing, their mien, as Warfield would say. So should this not be true of the Christian? Certainly, James is saying this is true of the wise man or the person of understanding. It's not just an intellectual reality to them, but it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's, it's something that, that goes from their head down to the very way they conduct themselves and the way that they live their lives. The word good, as I've already indicated, is an adjective. It describes the noun conduct or way of life. What you may not know is that in these few short verses, verses 13 to 18, there are 14 adjectives. I think it's the God's way of, 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 of saying to us, you know, well, there's two kinds of wisdom. There's a wisdom from below and a wisdom from above. We think, well, what's the difference? Well, adjectives help us describe a noun. And so these 14 adjectives, one which describes the way of wisdom, uh, five which describe the wisdom that is below, and eight that describe the wisdom that is from above, help us fill out the picture and describe for us these two different kinds of wisdom. We see the same thing in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Some of you might be familiar with that particular chapter of the Bible. Where there Paul says to the people that he's writing to in Philippi, he says, if there's anything excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about them. Well, me in my head, I think, well, what am I supposed to think about? What is excellent? What's worthy of praise? I don't know. And so Paul then uses adjectives. God gives him adjectives to describe for us what is worthy of praise and what is excellent so we know the type of things that we're to think about. And so, as you know, Paul then says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, these are things that are excellent. These are things that are worthy of praise. Think on these sorts of things. And so here, through James, God is giving us descriptors, important descriptors, of two kinds of wisdom, wisdom that's from above, wisdom that's from below. I'm a little bit all over the place today because I've had too much time to think on holidays and so it just gives me too many things to think about. But are you beginning to get a sense if you've been with us for a number of weeks now, are you, are you beginning to find a common thread in the book of James? Are you beginning to see it not just as a bunch of sort of random sayings about mercy or about impartiality or about trials or about temptations but are you beginning to find a a common thread that ties them together I think I am <laughs> it's taken me years but I, I think I'm finally at least this time through the book of James finding another thread and that thread is the power of the gospel to transform every area of our lives I think that's what James is getting at as he's working through this, is that, that he's talking about that, that when you become a follower of Jesus Christ, when you are born again by the word of God, when God's seed is implanted in you, it is a total transformation of every nook and cranny of your life. There is nothing that remains untouched. There is nothing of the old that will remain. Everything in you is renovated, transformed, and made new. See, sometimes we tend to compartmentalize faith. And even as we're seeking faith or searching out Christianity, 
We, we want it to change a certain part of us because maybe we've got a need and, and we're desperate. We, we've tried a whole lot of other things and we think, well, you know, I hear that Christianity can maybe help me. And so we, we want faith just for that little area of our life. But let me tell you, if and when you come to know Christ as your Lord and Savior, you will get more than you bargained for in such a beautiful, wonderful way. Because Jesus, in his love and mercy and by his great power, will begin to transform every single part of you. Even those things that you didn't know needed transformation, even those things that you had pressed so far down in your life, even those things that maybe you thought were impossible to ever be changed by anyone, the gospel, God, the one who began a good work in you will bring about a total renovation in your life. And we have these renovation shows on TV and often, you know, they, they, people buy this massive house and, and uh, they get an estimate on renovations of the living room and the kitchen for 150,000 bucks. And really? Well, they got to live in the rest of the house. What are they going to build the rest of the house? And I think sometimes that's how we view faith. We think, well, well, you know, I just need this part of my life renovated, God. I need you to just fix up this part. But as James has been describing faith for us, he says, listen, it's more than just a profession. You can't just embrace a profession. Does that save you? He says it's more than just about reading the Bible. That doesn't do any good. Do you do what you hear God speaking to you about? He says it's more than just an intellectual pursuit. He says even the demons know a lot about God. He says it's more than just external work. Stop deceiving yourself. Rather, it's this whole, complete, from the DNA up, change in our lives. Through new birth, what do I, what I do and why I do it, how I talk, how I treat other people, the orphans, the widows. Am I a person of mercy? Do I show impartiality? What about my response to everybody that's created in the image of God? I was thinking about that over this past week, and I know Barry dealt with this the week before, about when you, the way that we talk, how can we curse somebody made in the image of God? I thought of that driving I'm sometimes ashamed at the things that I blurt out as I confront people who don't drive the way that I do. And I was convicted this past week. Paul, who are you to talk about that person in that way because they're made in the image of God? You're dishonoring God when you talk about like that. See, when we grasp the fact that we are human beings made in the image of God, it will change the way that we talk to one another, the way that we think about one another, the way that we treat one another. This is somebody who reflects God. James is talking about faith that impacts our relationship with God. He is my heavenly Father. About my relationship with the world, I need to be, be careful not to be stained by the world, not to embrace friendship with the world. And now we're, we're talking about wisdom. 
You see, James is not just talking about add-ons, about a renovation in this room, a renovation in that room. What he's getting at is, listen, when we become followers of Christ, when, when God calls us into his family and calls us his sons and his daughters, he is going to do a total renovation and transformation of my life. And that is so awesome. So painful, but so awesome. As we've been saying, God is real. And that changes everything. And so as we come to this portion of scripture, you probably realize we're not going to get through it all today. Um, and I've already talked to the PowerPoint man up there, Ken, and just say, just keep the same slide on. Um, for those of you who will panic because you've got empty slots on your sheet, um, just let me help you out very quickly. Number one is the true test of wisdom. Number two is wisdom from below. And number three is wisdom from above. Now you can breathe easy. <laughs> but I, I just thought, you know, before we dive into this, I want to talk a little bit about wisdom. James tells us, and I believe the Bible, I really do. I believe this is God's revelation to us. God is a speaking God, and what a gift that is to us. And the Bible tells us there are only two sources of wisdom. The Bible is actually simplifies life quite a bit if you listen to it, but there's only two sources of wisdom. There's a wisdom from below, a wisdom that is in the world in which we live. And we'll listen to this next week, or we'll read about this. It is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. And then there is a wisdom from above. It's exotic. It's inaccessible to us naturally but it's a wisdom that comes to us from God. And I was, I was thinking about this in my study yesterday um, for all of us, but I was thinking particularly of you parents in the world in which we live today. I can't think of, well, I, I say this often, but I can't think of one more important thing for you to do than to begin to teach your child how to discern between wisdom of the world and wisdom from above. Because the outcome of their life depending on which wisdom they listen to, will be markedly different. And one of those wisdoms will lead them into disorder and every kind of evil and selfishness and narcissism. And the other kind of evil will lead them into purity and gentleness and peacefulness and reasonableness and sincerity. Are you teaching your boys and girls, grandparents, are you spending time with your grandkids, helping them understand that there are two different voices calling out to them, as the writer in Proverbs says, we have wisdom calling out to us, and we have folly calling out to us, and are you teaching them to discern between those two calls? This is what I would call one of the tier one questions again. Last two weeks ago, we talked about one of these uh, tier one questions or what I would say are really important questions. The one we looked at a few weeks ago is, can that faith save him? It really matters that you understand true saving faith. Because it's only saving faith that can save you. I was reading this morning of Jesus talking to his disciples, and he finally says to his disciples, he says, well, now, who do you say that I am? That's a tier one question. It matters. It really matters what you think about Jesus. 
Because that changes everything about you and the course of your life. Who is Jesus? Who do you say that Jesus is? We've asked this question on one of these catechisms. What is God? That is such an important question. And so here we have another one. Who among you is wise and understanding? Who will you look to for guidance and direction in life? What are you building your life upon? Your parenting? Your practice? Your career? Your education? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. That's the wisdom of the world. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So again, we come back to James chapter 3, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? It would seem that immediately James is thinking of teachers. He just spoke of them in the beginning of chapter 1, where he says, not many of you should become teachers. <laughs> I certainly chose the wrong profession. <laughs> not many of you should become teachers. Because of necessity, it involves words. Pastor Barry gave such a great exposition of this passage last week. And I think what James is getting at is that well, that's fresh in their head. He's saying, listen, um, one of the things that you need to know about teachers is not just what they say, but how they live. When you go out for coffee with them, when you go into their home, when they're in your home, when, when you're driving in the car with them, um, you know, those that, that teach your kids and stuff. Um, it's not just enough that they know stuff. But does that stuff translate into a beautiful life? You'd have to ask my wife, is my life is beautiful. But all I'm saying, it's not perfection that James is talking about here. He's talking about a trage trajectory, Godwardness, not sinlessness, not perfection, but godliness. But I think secondly, though, James is clearly talking about all of us, who among us, not just teachers, but who among us is wise and understanding? Where does it come from? As I already said, there's two vastly different sources. And I think we understand, do we not, that knowledge is not wisdom. We live in a world that advocates for knowledge. We live in a world that is inundated with the education fallacy. It simply says the solution to all our problems is more education. You got problems with uh, teenage pregnancy, educate them. You got problems with drugs, educate them. You got problems with gambling, educate them. You got problems with this, educate them. That's, that's our solution to everything. Just more education, that's all that's required. Well, that is not true. Wisdom is the ability to apply knowledge. It's the art of skillfully taking that knowledge and then applying it to life. 
That's what wisdom is. And so the, the, the question is not how many degrees you've got, what university you went to, how much gray matter you have, how much IQ. And this is what makes the wisdom of God so accessible. Wisdom is the ability to, to take the, the knowledge that you receive constantly, put it through a grid, and apply it in your life. It's so important that we understand that there are two kinds of wisdom. We live in a world that says there is only one kind of wisdom. We really do. I'll say a little bit more about this maybe in a couple moments. Our world is in a place now which is absolutely dangerous. Because it is saying there is no God and you have no access to God and there is no wisdom beyond the heavens. It's not always been like that. You can go back into history. Certainly biblical history would um, demonstrate this. Um, find this with Pharaoh of Egypt and, and Joseph when they are um, chatting together about Pharaoh's dreams. And Joseph not only gives them the interpretation, but then says, and this is the plan that you need, O king, for the next five years to save Egypt. And Pharaoh and his advisors, they look at each other and says, is there anybody in whom the Spirit of God rests? They understood that in Joseph there was a supernatural wisdom or there, there was a wisdom from above. You go into the life of Solomon. We could read the life of Solomon and I'm going to take just a moment to do this um, just so that you get a sense of uh, Solomon. First Kings chapter 4. Um, just kind of going by memory here. I hope I've got it right. First um, Kings chapter 4. Uh, it says there, God gave um, Solomon. Notice that, God gave. God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore. So that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the East and of all the wisdom of Egypt, for he was wiser than all men, wiser than Ethan the Ezrathite and Haman and Karkol and Draca the sons of Mahol, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. And you get a sense that we're just not talking about spiritual wisdom here, and I, I hope you're not shrinking it down. That we're talking about wisdom in every single area of life, because you go to chapter ten of. Uh, first Kings, when the Queen of Sheba comes to visit Solomon. And she had all these questions, all these riddles, everything that she wanted. And, and Solomon answered her everything. And it says, and when the Queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, listen to this, the house that he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his officials, the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, his burnt offerings that he offered in the house of the Lord, she was breathless. his knowledge of food and his knowledge of administration and his knowledge of architecture and his knowledge of gardening, all of it God had given to him. And as she saw it, she was breathless. But about four or five hundred years ago, our culture began to shift. And we moved away from the revelation of God to the reason of man. There was a compatibility with them for a while. Um, it wasn't necessarily one against the other. 
But as the sinfulness of man increased and the pride of man increased more and more and more, the sovereignty of God was replaced by the sovereignty of reason. The sovereignty of revelation was replaced by the sovereignty of reason. The sovereignty of God was replaced by the sovereignty of man. Where now we no longer look to revelation for wisdom, we look to reason for wisdom, human reason. Fast forward to the last couple hundred years and we are now at a place that, that, is, that is just awful, I think. Where we have embraced, embraced secularism and naturalism and scientific naturalism all of which say there is no God there is no external um, uh, uh, power there is no external wisdom there is nobody that you can look to for help or guidance we are all we need all the wisdom we need all the help we need all the understanding that we need we can find it on ourselves it's a new version of the Tower of Babel they tell us we lived in a we live in a closed universe that all there is to know and discover, we can know and discover in our own power, with our own brains, with our own heads, with our own reason. James says, all such wisdom is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Wisdom from above, on the other hand, assumes not only the existence of God, but the revelation of God. Not only the character of God that he is wise, but the generosity of God. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask. Margaret read Job 28 so beautifully. And by that, I mean she read it well. If you were to read the first 12 verses of Job 28, what you would find is a description of man's incredible ability to find things of great worth. So much so that they can overturn mountains, they can dam rivers, they can dig holes, they can see things that nobody else can see to get at precious jewels and precious ores. But then you come to verse 12 and Job asks this question, but where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Again, this is that primary question. And again, we're just talk, not talking about spiritual wisdom. We're talking about wisdom in every area of life. Wisdom for marriage, wisdom for child-wearing, wisdom for physics, wisdom for biology, wisdom for, art, um, for, for, for architecture, wisdom for nuclear medicine. Uh, any type of wisdom, any area of wisdom, it comes to us from God. And notice how Job answers this question, where does wisdom come from? He says, first, man does not know its worth. That's something for us to work through. But then secondarily, he says, it is not found in the land of the living. You understand what Job is saying, loved ones? It's not found in the public library. You can find knowledge there. You can find information there. But wisdom comes from God. And he asks, from where then does this wisdom come from? And where is this place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of the living. And then at long last, he says, God understands the way to it. And he knows its place. I can't impress upon myself enough and upon you enough, loved ones. 
the importance of grasping this. Where does it all begin? Job says, Behold, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. And so we're going to do, not what I intended, but at least partially a jet tour of Proverbs 1 to 9. I'd encourage you um, today or this week to, on your own, just with a pen and a notepad, read Proverbs 1 to 9 and absorb it. Take notes on it. Proverbs begins by simply saying, they were written for gaining wisdom and understanding and for receiving wise instruction in righteousness, justice, and wisdom. In other words, every good path. And then in verse 7 of chapter 1, Solomon is very clear to us. He says there, which we have already said, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Why the fear of the Lord? By, by fear, there is an element of fear. Because we are wise and right to fear God if he is who he says he is. But there's also this recognition of awe and, and, and adoration and being blown away by and respect for God. Why? Why is the fear of the Lord the beginning of wisdom? Well, here's just a, a couple ideas. One, and this I think is, 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 what does it say in the Genesis chapter 1 verse 1? In the beginning God, what? Created. The world. When you wrap your head around that, if God is the one that made this world, made this universe, made the cosmos, made the stars and the galaxies, made the trees and the fish, made the laws of physics and made the laws of, 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 of morality, and if God is the one that made you and I and knows us intimately, as the psalmist says in 139, he formed us in our mother's womb, does it not make sense that he is the source of wisdom? That he put us together? He put this world together? He knows how things go together? He knows what makes things? And so if you're working on a, a, a physics project and you can't make sense of it, does it not make sense to cry out to God and say, God, help me see the answer to this problem? Yes! Where's the amens when you need them? Do you understand, though, the fear of the Lord? Because he's the creator. He, he's made it all. He knows it all. By wisdom, he laid the foundations of the world. By wisdom, he threw the stars into space. Of Christ, it says, by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, authority, all things were created through him and for him. And therefore, Paul further says about Christ, in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Not just spiritual knowledge, although they're there, but all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom because we are so full of ourselves. You know, we, we are, we're so full of pride. And I, I think that's why I love the emphasis in James chapter 1. In the conduct of his life by the humility or the meekness of wisdom. There's no arrogance there. I didn't figure this out. I didn't solve this. I asked God. It, this is the humility that da Daniel shows and that Joseph shows when they're asked to interpret the dreams. Oh, it's not in me, but it's God. That's the humility of wisdom. And then you go through Proverbs and, oh, we'll skip a bunch. Um, Proverbs chapter 3. 
One of the, the, the passages of scripture we know so well, trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. In other words, fear the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Trust his wisdom. Trust his knowledge. Trust his understanding. He will help you raise your kids. He will help you do your job. He will help you pass that test. He will help you understand that project. Proverbs chapter 3, happy is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. You want to be happy? I do. I'm tired of being Eeyore. <laughs> happy is the one who finds wisdom and gets understanding. Her ways are ways of pleasantness. All her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Often we would read Proverbs together as a family. And in a number of places, in particular Proverbs 1 to 9, it would say, my son, listen to. And my boys would get frustrated with me. And I'd say, Andrew, Aaron, and Anthony, listen to. I would insert their names. I would personalize it for them so that they understood or at least could try and understand that this was for them. They weren't just words that fluttered out here. These were words for Andrew, Aaron, and Anthony. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call insight your intimate friend. Again, Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Loved ones, this is the well from which James is drawing as he writes verses 13 to 18. But a wisdom and the humility that comes from such wisdom Does wisdom from heaven matter to my everyday life? Does the source of wisdom matter in your everyday life? Well, who do you want to make decisions about the end of your life? Somebody who embraces a wisdom from below or somebody who embraces a wisdom from above? Who do you want to inform you about what you ought to do about that life that you're carrying in your womb unexpectedly? Somebody who is full of wisdom from below or somebody who is full of wisdom from above? Do you think it matters who you turn to when you are wrestling with issues of sexual identity? Who do you want to guide you when you're having concerns about your children and their behaviors or things that you see in them that need correcting. Somebody full of wisdom from below who doesn't believe in God and has no concept of sin. Or somebody who is full of wisdom from above and embraces the revelation of God and applies its principles to your family and to your children. Do you think it matters? who you listen to as you think about the end of your life and whether there is anything after you die. Somebody who tells you you're nothing, you mean nothing, and when you die, you go into nothing. Or somebody who tells you that you are an eternal being and when you die, there is everlasting life or everlasting separation from life. 
I read this quote, or heard this quote this past week from one of the most unlikely sources, but I guess it makes sense, from Socrates. I didn't hear it from Socrates. Socrates spoke it. Um, But it's this. All of the wisdom of this world is but a tiny raft upon which we must set sail when we leave this earth. If only, he writes, there was a firmer foundation upon which to sail, perhaps some divine word. Loved ones, we have a divine word which points us to the one who is all wise. Not just wise in issues of spiritual matters, but is wise in every single area of this world in which we live. May God draw us to himself through the person of his son, Jesus Christ, and bring us into a relationship with him and begin to trust his wisdom for our lives. Father, I thank you for your word today and for the way it does instruct us. I'm just aware of just so how countercultural this sounds to our ears. It's almost a foreign language now, and yet it's true, and it matters. So would you um, once again reorientate us to heaven? Even for what we're facing this week, Father, the challenges of our life, the challenges of our home, the challenges of our school or our job place, May there be a tweak again and again and again. Oh, there is a source of wisdom that can help. There is a God who knows all things, a God who knows everything, and he is more than generous to give if I will ask him, Father, give me wisdom. And may that wisdom translate into a beautiful life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.